Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi everyone. Thanks for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Welcome back. It's going to be an awesome week. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, this is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, Kira, I'm excited to hear what you've been up to. It sounds like you've, I feel like you're busy all the time, but you're, <laughs> you're like repping all these conferences and things. It sounds like there's a lot going on. Maybe all of us have decided that it's time for us to have social interaction again in some professional <laughs> setting. <laughs> well, it's, I feel like there's just, I don't know, a few things that were planned for the fall and they're all coming at once, which is great. It's exciting. I just got off a symposium this morning and it was very inspiring and really fun to hear what people around the country are doing. And um, yeah, no, it was good. It was, it's a, it was an American Institute of Architects, San Francisco chapter committee on the environment symposium. And it was really good. It was a lot of a lot of good people, including I would point out. So one of the great things, of course, about the pandemic is that all these regional conversations are now can include people from all over the country much more easily. And so Mark Chambers from the New York City Department of Buildings was our kickoff speaker, and he was so inspiring. He really had some great. In fact, in fact, I have to share it. Sorry, I have to. It's just a little snippet because he was like, he he pointed out three questions that he asked himself every day as a policy director and a designer. You know, he's head of sustainability for the New York City uh, Department of Buildings. He asks, how can this project dismantle our dependency on fossil fuels? How can this project confront systemic racism and oppression? And how does this project confront the climate emergency right now? And I thought, well, sure, let's just do that every day and then we're good, right? Yeah, that's awesome. I'm excited yeah. to look this guy up. I don't, I don't know him and I'm super great. Asked about it. He's uh, great. He's great. Okay. It was fun. That sounds like fun. Yeah. yeah what are you up to? Well, I actually um, had a chance for a few minutes today to join this event that happened. I'm, I'm looking forward to going back um, and watching the rest of it. But it, it's, it's called like EE Day or Energy Efficiency Day 2020. And it's put on by um, two groups, Kinetic Communities Consulting yep. um, and the Women of Color Collective of Sustainability, which is pronounced WOKSIF. Um, yep. And I'm very excited about it. I just was happy to be able to attend an event and listen to exclusively people of color in our industry talking about the work they do. And like, it, I just, I have so many ideas for the podcast now, which is great. It's just um, really appreciative of the organizers um, in particular. I feel like there's a couple, at least one of the organizers. I'm like, okay, we got to get her on the podcast. So absolutely. Uh, Lindsay, okay. I was on this morning too, from se from seven to eight before I got onto my other thing. Um, and it was great. I was really inspired and excited. And I do hope that I get the recording because I'd like to hear the rest of it. Yeah, I think they said that the recordings would be shared. So I think if you go, you should be able to still go by the time this airs to eeday2020.splashthat.com. I'm not sure exactly how it'll work, but I'm, I'm sure that if you paid them yep. the $15 that it takes to register, you could probably also watch the things afterwards yeah. if you wanted. It was to. great. 
really impressive, um, exciting uh, program and super badass individuals. So that was fun. Um, yeah, it was, it was a good motivator for a, a foggy Wednesday mm-hmm. here in San Francisco. Uh, well, not San Francisco, you know, <laughs> the, the, the sunnier city on the other side of the bay. That's right. Um, but yeah, so I guess let's just go ahead and get started with our guest this week, who I'm so excited about. We have so much to talk to her about um, that I'm like, I'm ready to go. Um, we have Rachel Gutter with us. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks to you both for having me. So psyched to be on with you. Yeah, well, uh, obviously this is one that had to happen, and we're just <laughs> pleased that you that you could find the time. Um, so, so just for a quick intro for anyone who is not heard of Rachel. Rachel is the CEO and president of the International Well-Building Institute and um, also the founding director of the Center for Green Schools, which we are going to talk more about um, as, as, uh, as Rachel tells us about her path. Um, so um, Rachel, we would love for you to just start by telling us a little bit about how and why you got involved in the sustainable building industry, um, because we are excited about some of the stories that you're going to tell <laughs> everybody about this. It's always heartwarming. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I'll start with just a really quick overview of IWBI and what we do. We're a public benefit uh, corporation. Um, global in our reach, uh, doing business in more than 60 countries, and we're best known for um, the WELL certification, which can be applied to buildings, to organizations, and to communities, um, like LEED, um, which was created by the U.S. Green Building Council, where I spent about 10 years of my career before coming to IWBI four years ago. Um, the WELL certification is a voluntary third-party certification, but whereas a tool like LEED or um, like like Briam, for instance, um, GBCA's Green Star tool have uh, planetary health as the center of gravity for their work and um, offering, um, we have human health as our center of gravity. So we intersect on a lot of different issues like daylighting, for instance, um, air quality, um, and material health. Um, but we uh, also venture deeper into spaces like equity and inclusion, community connectivity, um, nourishment, physical fitness, um, uh, and movement, to name a few. Um, and so, okay, my path, my story actually involves both of you um, at various <laughs> places and very pivotal moments. I, um, I started my career out in education um, and I was doing a bunch of curriculum work and teaching and tutoring, and I ended up shelving a, a curriculum project unexpectedly. And my aunt said, there's someone I think you need to meet. And she introduced me to a woman who ran her own interior design and architecture firm. Um, I was living in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the time. And I went from being her intern to being her design director within the space of a couple of weeks. And it was a, a small firm. Um, but I fell in love with the work itself um, and a lot of the early work that she was doing around green design that is um, so, um, uh, I think, just in, inherent and, and, and native um, to New Mexico um, and, and to the deep ties to um, Native American communities there, the architecture um, and uh, design practice. So I um, am sitting in her office one day and I get this email that says last chance to register for Green Build in Denver. 
And when you live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, six hours is like close. That's like your neighbor city. So we decided we would get in her husband's pickup truck that we had to fill with bricks so that we could drive through a blizzard on the front range to get to Greenville. But we went on a whim. And when I got there, we were just in time for the opening plenary. And that was the first time I had ever heard about the concept of a green school. Rick uh, Fedrizi, the CEO at the time, um, was talking about it in the opening plenary. And I thought, oh my God, this is like exactly at the intersection of everything that I care about and want to be working on from education and children's advocacy to environmental and sustainability related themes. So I ran to the first session, put my stuff down to save my seat, ran out of the room, called my parents, left a message on the answering machine, because that was how long ago it was, and said, <laughs> you guys can stop panicking. I know what I want to do with the rest of my life. And it turns out that the facilitator of that Lead for Schools session was none other than you, Lindsay Baker. And afterwards, I remember I stood in line really long to wait for all the people to ask you all the questions. And I kept telling people, okay, you can go in front of me. You can go in front. I want to have the last word. And then I got to you and you said, sorry, I have to leave for another session. So I oh. walked with you. I don't know if you remember <laughs> this, but I, I walked with you. I said like, okay, let me walk with you then. And I said, my name's Rachel. I really want to work for you. And then you were like pretty like reserved and cool at the time. But then I was like stalking you throughout the conference, like this massive convention center. And I'm like, wow, Lindsay Baker is so crazy to like run into you again. And so you finally, uh, over the course of, of this four day conference, um, confessed that you were leaving USGBC to go to grad school. So then I was like, okay, great. I want your job. What do I have to do? And you are kind enough to help me to understand the kind of candidate that USGBC was looking for, which was a candidate who had school district green building experience, which was like for real a unicorn. Like there were five of those people in the United States. One of them had been on your panel. She happened to work for Montgomery County Schools, which is where I went to school, where my mother worked for several decades. And I called her after the conference, Anya Caldwell, an amazing architect. And I said, how do you like a free intern? And she said, I already cleared my desk space. So I drove cross country three days by myself, pretty much nonstop, moved back in with my parents, swore I would never do that, and took an unpaid internship with Montgomery County Schools. I did that for several months. The job at USGBC didn't get posted, not yet anyway. You went off to grad school. By that time we had become friends. I was dropping off updated copies of my resume every few weeks. I'm sure you thought that was really kind of annoying. <laughs> it was persistent. It was great. <laughs> Very persistent. Um, and then Anya said, you know what, Rachel, you really need to get a job. Like I get that you want this USGBC job, but who knows, it's not coming online. And she sent me the link to um, a consultancy position at a, a woman-owned local green building consulting firm. Well, I got the job and lo and behold, my first assignment was as a consultant to USGBC writing the lead for schools curriculum. Meanwhile, um, Anya's send-off gift to me was a very precious book that I still have to this day written by none other than Kira Gold. Uh, so both of you sort of these women in sustainability shaping my journey I was at the um, consulting firm working on the Lead for Schools curriculum for USGBC for a couple of months when the, the owner asked if for a volunteer to go drop off, here we go, another dating moment, a CD-ROM filled with all the content that we owed USGBC. And so I raised my hand and I know I've embellished this part of the story, but in my mind, the elevator doors part and there's like music playing and there's like gorgeous young people like collaborating in the hallway. And I was like, oh my God, what have I done? Like I have to work at this place. 
and I called you, I like emergency called you at Berkeley and was like, you remember this part? And I was like, I made a mistake. What do I do? I really wanted this job. It's finally posted. And you were like, Rachel, the hiring manager, Doug Gatlin already has all six copies of your resume that you've been updating and dropping off every few weeks. And they're waiting for you to call. Um, and then the rest of the story is, is, is history. Doug Gatlin says that he went sprinting down the hallway to Tom Hicks's office and said, I found her, I found her. And um, that began a 10-year journey that was um, what I thought would be the best job I would ever have in my life, except that the one that I have right now, I would describe as equally wonderful and thrilling in, in different ways. It's so great to hear it from your, your perspective, because I, like, I hope that listeners really take heart in hearing that Rachel just was so incredibly persistent. And and also like you could tell, I could tell from meeting you that you were someone who knew how to do this work. Like you had, you know, some background, some understanding of how organizing worked and some understanding of why climate mattered to you so much and how, and you know, why the environmental movement was important. But like, it was really at the end of the day, just this conviction <laughs> that's got you, got you where you were. Funny thing is like, I didn't have that before that moment. Like my parents were like sending me books called like what to do when you don't know what to do and how to overcome your quarter life crisis. And so, you know, for me, the biggest life lesson of that is like, you got to wander till you find something that makes your heart sing. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, I'm very glad that you wandered into my panel that day because I have no idea where we would all be otherwise. Yeah, I'm, I am. I am far more grateful, and I'm really thrilled to have this opportunity to retell that story and, and just say thank you for opening that door for me. And it's it's not just that you connected with me in that moment, but you really helped me to position myself for that job. And I'm not sure I would have it today if it wasn't for you. Well, it's, um, it's awesome. And, um, and I, I guess, okay, so there's so much more that we could talk about about your career path, but I think maybe I'm going to pass it over to Kira to, to talk a little bit more about your work, because we do want to talk about like, you know, where you have taken things and what you're proud of and all of that. So take it away, Kira. Absolutely. Um, and I loved hearing that story, Rachel. I've never heard that in quite that form. It was fantastic. Um, so thank you for sharing it. But yes, so you have had that, that 10 years plus what you're doing now. There's so much going on. So let's talk a little bit about what you're most proud of accomplishing in your work life, really. And that could be wherever you want to take that question. For me, this is a really simple question to answer because by far what I'm most proud about are the teams that I've had the incredible opportunity to build and grow and develop. Um, I realized how deeply passionate I was about leading teams when I had the opportunity to build one at USGBC and the Center for Green Schools. And then uh, again at IWBI where um, when when I took the job, the organization was, I don't know, probably about a quarter of the size that it is today. Um, and I find leading teams to be some of the most challenging work that anyone could do, but also so rewarding. And just this notion that you can build something so much greater than yourself by really focusing on emboldening and empowering individuals, but also creating a culture that supports collaboration, that instills trust, and that you know ultimately creates uh, a playing field where everyone can have a chance to do their best work. 
That's great, Rachel. Um, you know, and I feel like we have to ask you too about IWBI and this year. I mean, it's a pandemic. It's, the, the world is focused on public health and personal health in a way that it hasn't been for a long time. And, um, you know, what's changed at IWBI this year? What, what's going on for you guys? <laughs> well, let's start with everything, including um, I became the CEO, um, Lady Boss. And my one of my very closest friends in the entire world, Pratik Kana, became the COO, um, which is just, wow, such an amazing moment to be able to lead an organization with one of your closest friends. You know, I was like at the hospital the day after his daughter was born. And so to have that kind of like trust and rapport, it just couldn't be more ideal for really leading an organization as a team. But aside from that, COVID has essentially changed everything. It threw our work plan for a loop. Um, it prompted a huge amount of innovation within the organization. So the, the, the story that I'll tell you is, um, you know, we're, we're headquartered in New York and um, super hard hit by COVID. We saw the, that the virus was going to make its way to the U.S. because we've got 20 team members in um, Asia who were more or less on lockdown for two months or so before we knew that um, the virus was here. And we had only just the day before um, announced that we were postponing the, the first uh, well conference um, that we had scheduled for March and April. That very same day had told our staff that we were moving to remote work indefinitely. And I pulled aside our chief engineer, Nathan, and I said, you're, I know you're gonna kill me. I know that the team has been like sprinting to get well version two out of pilot um, it was the day before our governance council was convening to vote it out of pilot. And I said, but I feel like given what's happening, we have to do one more sweep and make sure that the system is really doing everything that it can to address COVID-19 and reduce risk within well-certified environments. So um, Nathan, <laughs> Nathan said, well, my first instinct is no, but let me think about it. And eventually we did decide to press pause. We created um, a COVID-19 task force that was chaired by, um, you know, Dr. Richard Carmona, former uh, U.S. Surgeon General, the previous head of the China CDC, um, Joe Allen from Harvard School of Public Health, um, and 600 volunteers raised their hand from more than 25 countries to participate. So we took like a 60-day sprint to do a crowdsourcing of all their information and recommendations, hearing what they were going through. We had three full-time researchers plus our standard development team just doing nothing but scanning through the research that was available and that was coming out. And the sum total of that effort amounted to um, a, a number of changes to the well building standard, but also a brand new product called the well health safety rating, which is a subset of well features and something that can be achieved um, with more simplicity in a shorter period of time specifically focused on acute health threats and safety threats within the built environment. And so we, we released that product. I mean, we, we developed it and launched it within the space of about 60 days, which is just insane. And, uh, and, and we're now um, just putting the finishing touches on our guidelines for preparedness, prevention, resilience, and recovery, which has 30 authors from within IWBI and quotes from dozens of leaders from all around the world sharing perspectives, lessons learned, and thoughts on the future, um, given everything that we now know, having um, been through and, and still operating from the midst of this pandemic. Right. Wow. 
Rachel, that's a lot. <laughs> um, but I'm not surprised also uh, <laughs> that, that, that you guys took it to that level of seriousness and really um, and made that pause count, as it were. Um, that's really fantastic. Yeah, it was great. I think it brought out the best in all of us. We just felt so motivated by this idea that we could actually be making a contribution and spending our time, our work days, working on the thing that was taking up all the space in our heads anyway. You know, it just felt so good to have purpose. Right. That's fantastic. Is there a project that you're working on now that you would like our listeners to know about? I have um, one of my dearest mentors and someone who's familiar to both of you, Judith Webb, in my head as you ask me that question. She always likes to say, Judith, simple truth. No one ever wants to know everything you want to tell them. But I want to like tell you everything because I'm so excited about the work that we're doing right now. So I could tell you a little more about HSR. We've now had more than 10,000 um, buildings that have registered for that, again, in the space of like three months. We're doing a, a massive consumer like public campaign and through TV and media with a lot of the major brands that have signed on to the health safety rating um, like the New York Yankees for instance and uh, we have a totally star-studded lineup like jaw-dropping incredible celebrities and visionaries and um, healthcare leaders and so forth um, who are are starring um, in that campaign which launches in a couple of months we're doing a, just a ton of diversity, equity, and inclusion work right now, particularly in dimensionalizing the standards. So we just released new beta features, for instance, for domestic violence and how workplaces support uh, employees who are dealing with domestic violence, as well as a feature on fair labor practices and modern slavery. So really thinking about all of the different ways in which the built environment can level the playing field for, for everyone. And then I guess finally, the other passion project uh, that we're, we're working on right now is mapping the materiality of health and well-being to demonstrate the impact on a business's bottom line um, and find better inclusion of health and well-being metrics within ESG frameworks. Um, because right now, health and well-being is super, super underrepresented in most of those ESG frameworks, um, in part because it's hard to measure. And so we're leveraging the experience that we have, the um, expertise that we have on, on, on the research and also the data that we have access to, to start to really crack that code because we think there's just a ton of capital at the end of that rainbow for many of the causes that we all um, really care about if we can decode um, where the ROI exists in a healthy building. That is super cool. I just have to say like the idea that that becomes a bigger part of the definition of ESG and like I'm I'm so excited for it. It also sort of helps to bridge between the perception that sometimes the E and the S are not that related. You know? right. <laughs> like, right. Um, so yeah, I can see that mattering a lot and such important. It's like such a timely moment for that. So thanks. That's that's yeah. super cool. I'm glad you brought up the connection to the E too, because there's some really fascinating research that's come out um, of late, in particular, a study by Nora Wang at PNNL, where they were able to calculate the net present value, you know, the 10-year MPV for an energy efficiency retrofit. And then they overlaid on top of that health-related provisions um, and basically found that for the same improvements, the ROI could be magnified by 50 to 100x. So in some ways, it's almost like saying we've been calculating the benefits and the payback wrong. 
because, or, or we've been short selling it because we haven't actually been factoring in human health related benefits. So that's kind of what I'm getting at when I say there's all this capital that awaits to underwrite energy efficiency retrofits and green affordable housing if we can help to demonstrate where that payback comes from. Because if you can demonstrate the ROI, then you can find different ways to, to monetize it. That's awesome. I love it. I just have to second what Lindsay was saying is that is huge. It is a that is a really big deal. I, I mean, I'm very excited about that. And that really, it's interesting because that it makes me think of there, there are some other tensions, I think, in our industry around health, the issues of health. And, and one of them has to do with a perceived tension between healthy versus green or efficient buildings. And I wondered if you'd talk about that issue. Yeah, let me just like be on record and say that's garbage. <laughs> <laughs> this myth that I feel is like propagated by people who don't want change. Um, and that's a fascinating trend that I've observed over my career in market transformation, you know, driven movements um, that the early adopters sometimes themselves become the protectors of the status quo. Um, almost everything that an energy efficient or green building would do and a healthy building would do are overlapping or complementary. There's one, I think, example that you hear over and over again to describe that tension which has to do with balancing indoor air quality with an energy footprint. You know, if you're just like having a massive amount of, you know, air exchange ventilation, then, you know, you're going to see that come across in, in, a, in a greater energy footprint. That is like also kind of like silly because if you're making smart choices, if you're right-sizing your HVAC system, if you're going with the best technology that's available, if you're smart about when you're running the fan, if you're replacing your filters regularly, you really don't have to make those kinds of sacrifices. So sure, there's a, a tension there. That's a good tension. There's a tension with acoustics between you know, ambient noise, like you wanna have some background noise so that it's not you know, too quiet, um, but not too much background noise. So it's too noisy. It's like, these are just two conditions that you have to balance depending on what your needs are. The same thing goes for energy efficiency and, and air quality. And then, you know, you could name a bazillion other things that are essentially one in the same or, or, or overlapping, you know, so green building approached daylight, first and foremost, from the perspective of, of, of energy efficiency. But now we're coming to understand the massive gains that are associated with, um, with human health productivity, you know, regulating a good night's sleep. Another um, good example, operable windows, great way to save energy. And in this moment, one of the cheapest, easiest, and most important ways um, to reduce the risks of spreading COVID-19, um, to reduce the risk of transmission when you, you don't have the ability to go in there and rip out your HVAC system and start over again. Healthy materials, um, also more or less one in the same. And in fact, a lot of our features in Well basically say C lead version four because we didn't want the industry to have to deal with two totally different ways of approaching the same theme. So, you know, I, I really encourage people to think beyond that silly notion that somehow these, these two things are um, not complementary. Now, that doesn't mean that they're the same. As I said, the two frameworks, like a framework for healthy buildings and a framework for green buildings, they just have different centers of gravity. And so what we've tried to do with WELL is encourage our projects to pursue dual certification. We give five bonus points in a 100 point system just for achieving the certification. And then we have these like extensive crosswalks with all the major green building certifications 
that show then all of the other places where if you do want, if you earn one credit, for instance, in LEAD, then you don't have to double document and you'll earn it toward your well certification. And the punchline is that the majority of projects that have achieved a well certification have also achieved a green building certification, which I think really cuts to the heart of the complementary nature. Yeah, that is that is very true. And I, I also hope that for many of us, especially our listeners, in 2020, we have thought about the intersections of different struggles a lot more than we had before and have hopefully put that whole idea behind us that somehow these things conflict. So um, well, and, 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 and moreover, you know, COVID-19, the wildfires on the West Coast, like these things may be, you know, what actually move us toward embracing sustainability because we're forced to accept our interdependence, you know, between people and planet. We're, you know, we're forced to acknowledge the fragility of our health, you know, in the face of these global changes. And so we believe, Rick often refers to, IWBI and well as the second wave of sustainability, one that absolutely is in pursuit of sustainable goals, just simply filtering it through this universal imperative uh, that we all have, which is to ourselves be healthy and for our families to be well and our businesses and, and communities to be thriving. Um, and so I, you know, we see them as one in the same. In fact, we've mapped our well features to the sustainable development goals and found 100% alignment, as in well touches on every single one of the sustainable development goals. And you can see that mapping at the feature level on, on our website. You know, I think like us, the SDGs took the topic of sustainability and applied a human focus in an effort to try and find better mechanisms for motivating people to change. Yeah, and, and, and okay, so speaking of these like first wave, second wave things, it leads us to a question that I've been asking people recently, and I'm super curious about your response. It, it's about this idea of us as a movement um, versus an industry. Yeah. And I wonder if you can tell us, do you feel like you're a part of just an industry? Do you feel like you're a part of a movement? How do you distinguish between those roles for yourself? Yeah, that's a really nice and evocative question. I mean, I, I'm not sure I think of green building or sustainability as an industry at all, um, but I absolutely think about this pursuit of green buildings, pursuit of healthy buildings as a movement or a series of related and overlapping movements. I, in fact, I often remind the team at IWBI that, you know, we're not in the business of giving out plaques. We're in the business of market transformation. And it turns out that thinking about our work that way is super clarifying. Um, we use a model that we, I started, I introduced at the Center for Green Schools around that notion of market transformation. So if you like picture an adoption curve, right, it's not a straight line up, right? It's a, it's yeah. a curve that had maybe had some peaks and valleys, you know, and eventually you get to that like steepening of the curve when mainstream really starts to accept. And, you know, what we really realized, it started at the center. So I'll put it through that filter. If you're thinking about the mission of the Center for Green Schools, green schools for, for all within this generation, and you are plotting the adoption curve, you would probably put time on the x-axis, like time elapsed, and like something, some metric like the number of green schools on the y-axis. Um, and so when, when we started to think about our plotting the adoption curve toward green schools for all, we realized, well, you know, we don't build the schools ourselves. Sure, we certify them, but we don't build them and we don't control time. So the only thing that we can really hope to do is impact the slope of the curve. 
right? Like remember that, you know, from whatever yeah. that was, the algebra, y equals mx plus b. All we can really control is the m. And so it turns out that that's really clarifying as an exercise because, because you ask yourself, what can I do that will require the least amount of time, you know, resources, expenditure um, to, to see the greatest impact on the slope? And that helps, I've found, to take a lot of things off of the table because it's important, but it's not the most important and impactful thing. And you know what? We're running out of time. Yeah, exactly. I love that. And it's also just fun to hear how you talk about it with those communities. It's really important for us all to remember that that's what the role of these organizations is um, and that that's what we should expect from them. Um, so thanks for that. All right, my last question for you, uh, and then Kira's got one to wrap up. It's My question is about where you thought we'd be in 2020. And in particular, I mean, you're a leader in this, and so I think it'll probably be easier for you to know the things we've done well in the past, you know, 20 years as a as a movement and as a group of people, but um, maybe where you think we should have done better by now or where you would like to see us all focus our efforts. Whew. Well, I certainly didn't think we'd be here talking to each other over Zoom, you know, wearing masks <laughs> when we step out of our house, houses. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, my heart goes out to so many people who have lost loved ones or suffered so many other severe and cascading consequences because of this global pandemic. I feel so angry that so many of our leaders, particularly our administration and the WHO, um, the CDC, who have, as far as I'm concerned, worked pretty hard to obfusc obfuscate the truth that this virus is airborne. Um, and thus uh, reduced our ability to fight back in the best way we know how. And all of that said, one of the things we've done to keep ourselves sane at IWBI is we've, we've started to keep a, a, a running list of COVID silver linings. And in many ways, I think that COVID propelled this movement forward in many ways that we're only just starting to understand. In particular, in the general public's eye. You know, we recognize that market transformation is impossible without the engagement of the public. There has to be a demand driver there. People have to demand lead certified places to work. They have to demand well-certified homes. And so I think, you know, all of us have become so much more acutely aware of how our physical environments impact our health, whether we're thinking about our home, where we all of a sudden spend enormously more time than we used to, or whether we're thinking about that restaurant and does it have good ventilation and cleaning practices to make it safe to eat. Um, and so I think that, that that level of awareness is now driving a substantial amount of demand. So I'll give you an example of where we're seeing that. Um, I mentioned the immediate popularity of well health safety. Well, the sectors, many of the sectors where we're seeing the greatest levels of uptake are sectors that historically have not participated in green building certifications, at least not at scale. Um, retail, for instance, restaurants, uh, hospitality, uh, businesses that often believed that, you know, the, the plaque that is shorthand for green and sustainability might be misinterpreted by the consumer as somehow relating to scarcity. Like uh, as a hotel owner once, or, or a hotel um, uh, head of guest experience told me once, you know, don't want to be cheated out of the good shower and the clean sheet. Um, and yet these businesses are now seeing that there's a consumer angle to this, that um, having that seal that exists as the shorthand 
to say you can feel more confident going inside because the seal is on the outside and address some of that confidence gap that we have in getting back to our lives and, and business as usual, um, you can see that they are starting to see the value in that. And what's really important about that, that goes back to that consumer facing campaign I was mentioning before is something that we're working on is that they are now putting their marketing dollars behind educating the consumer. For every $1 that I have to spend convincing a consumer that you know a healthy building is what they need, it's the place where they wanna eat, the place where they wanna work, the place where they wanna you know, lay their children to sleep at night, they have a million dollars. That's not a joke. They have like a million dollars for my every $1 to spend. And so that magnification opportunity, I think is really tremendous. And then finally, like I mentioned before, I just hope that this instance that has just brought the entire globe to its knees will remind us of just how fragile that existence is and how much more care we have to take of the planet and one another if we want to keep this good thing that we've got going. That's beautifully put, Rachel. I love it. Um, and I certainly hope it does. I mean, I, I do see reason for hope about that too out there in the world right now. So um, we really like to end with a question about uh, who you are most inspired by these days in terms of leaders. And that can be in any realm, any type of person that you are inspired by. Well, first of all, from an environmental perspective, I'm really inspired by the work that I'm doing as part of a new board convened by Paul Hawken. Paul is next year um, getting ready to release his new book called Regeneration and has stood up a board and soon an organization to support that platform and that work. It's a majority female board, which is always such a, an unusual um, joy to be a part of. And he's been so careful um, as Paul would be in terms of who he selected to be a part of it. So I'm just amazed at the company that I get to keep as a part of that, but also just so inspired by this idea of regeneration. It was like, for someone who spent so much of her life focused on sustainability and energy efficiency, I was like blown away by the notion of regeneration and just this idea that energy efficiency at the end of the day is doing less bad. And regeneration is really about, is, is really about giving back, you know, putting carbon back into the atmosphere, um, most especially. So I'm, I'm really excited to be more, getting more ingrained in the universe of people who are doing work on regeneration. Um, particularly regenerative agriculture. And then the, the other inspiration that I find day after day is just always in kids. My you know, niece, Lily, who I just feel like she gets all of us up in my family every day, but also um, some of the younger people who I've gotten to hang out with who are a little older during the pandemic, who just, if you really tune in and listen to them, just have such profound things to say about what's happening around them. And I feel like that's the generation and the generations that that are going to come after them that we're really working on behalf of, you know, we're just leaving this like really big mess in their hands. And what I see is a generation of young people who really get that in ways that our generations haven't and who are really activated to do something about it, um, that they're fighting for their own lives and the well-being of their future children. And I just, I find their embracing of the seriousness of this and their activation around what needs to, to change to just be, yeah, a real source of um, energy and, and, and inspiration. Yeah, that's powerful indeed. 
Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really nice point to, to end on. Um, so thank you for being with us. This has been a, a delight. I'm sure we could talk so much more about all of these things, but um, you know, it's just lovely to have you on and, and have everyone get to hear a little bit about what's going on in, in your head these days. So much going on in my head, but thank you for giving me a chance to talk about it. And uh, I, I hope that um, anyone who listens to this and gets excited about anything I've spoken about will reach out to us at IWBI and raise your hand to get involved. We really believe in the power of co-creation. And thanks to the two of you for what you're co-creating. I think it's a, a really important platform that you're expanding upon. And I'm psyched to see where it goes. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, thank you. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I also just want to end on uh, reminding everyone about how much Rachel's talked today about the power of women supporting each other. And I think, um, you know, her story, all of our stories have so much of that in them that I hope everybody can go out this week and support someone that they that they know needs a little bit of support in, in their career or in their life and whatever they're doing. Um, it's a, it means a lot. It, it actually does. So I hope you've taken that with you. Um, and that is it for us this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you all, our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.